Let me just read those two verses to us. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I don't know how you found those words being read. I don't know what that brought into your mind. The thought of people wandering away from Jesus. I imagine when we stop to think about it, most of us know someone or many people who have wandered away from Jesus. They seem to be following him, but over time, the the pleasures of this world or other things got in the way, they got distracted and they wandered away from the one they used to follow. People come flooding into my mind as I think of wandering away. I think of Will. Will was a good friend of mine at school. Will was pretty influential in me becoming a Christian. If you go into my office uh, at church and you kind of look at the Bible reading notes on the shelf, there's the kind of first Bible reading notes I was ever given that helped me to get into the Bible for myself. On the inside cover, you can turn and open it, and it's from him. Will was influential in me coming to Christ. But over the years, the temptations of this world loomed large for Will. He went to university and they won. He's nowhere with the Lord not darkening the door of a church. Think of Jack. Jack was one of my close Christian friends at university. We loved being in Bible study groups together. Jack went off on his year abroad. He didn't really settle in a church as he was away for a year. He thought, oh, it's a year. That's probably not that big a deal. He'll be fine when he gets back. Actually, it was just the start of a slide, a gentle slide, away from Christ. And now, he wouldn't call himself a Christian and hasn't for many years. I think of Rory. Rory uh, became a Christian in a church I used to work for. He was part of my Bible study group. I've never seen someone so hungry to know what God's word has to say. Initially, anyway. I moved on from that church, so did Rory. We've completely lost contact, but if social media is anything to go by, he's much more interested in the pleasures of this world than he is in Christ. I don't know who comes into your mind when you think of someone wandering away. Maybe it's someone who was at church here or a friend from a previous church. Maybe it's someone you personally invested in when you were their Sunday school teacher or their youth group leader or you led them on a camp. Maybe for you most painfully it's a family member, a brother or sister, a child. Or maybe that's your biggest fear for your children as you seek to raise them to know the Lord. Most of us know someone, if not many people, who have wandered away. It's painful. And often we see the signs. They're a little bit less regular amongst us. I guess that's harder to notice in something like a summer. It's quite easy to miss a few weeks at church over August and no one really noticed. But most other times of the year you notice when people aren't here. Maybe for them it's not so much they're they're, they're coming to church less, but that sin that they struggle with, that you know they struggle with, it seems like they're losing more and more. But actually the issue isn't so much that they're losing more and more, it's that they seem less and less bothered when they lose the fight. 
What do we do about it? What do we do about fellow Christians who seem to be wandering away? Here's the headline this morning. Christians are to be involved in search and rescue. Christians are to be involved in search and rescue. They are to pursue the wandering sinner. Three things we're going to see about wandering this afternoon. Here's the first, the reality of wandering. As James addresses his hearers one more time as he comes to the end of this letter, he addresses them the same way he's been addressing them throughout. My brothers and sisters. I'm aware that you guys haven't recently been reading through the book, but if you were reading through the book of James and you got to this and you saw that he was still calling these people his brothers and sisters, it's almost surprising. When you stop to think of all the things he's been rebuking them for, all the ways they've fallen short, here's just a sample. There are people amongst them who hear God's word but don't really want to do what it says, who pick favourites within their church family based on bank balance who say they believe in Jesus but don't seem to be living it out, who use their tongues not to bless others like they should, but to curse others, to speak ill of others. They have lives shaped by earthly wisdom, envy and selfish ambition. They are those who choose friendship with the world over friendship with God, and so they fight with one another and who plan their lives arrogantly with no thought of God. It's a snapshot of the kind of people that James is writing to, and yet he says, my brothers and sisters. Despite all their failings, despite the fact that time and time again they fall short, despite the fact that each of us time and time again fall short, if we have a common faith in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters. These here as were. So too are we. And to those brothers and sisters, he has one more thing he wants to say. He wants to make one final plea. And the plea is about what to do when one amongst their number starts to wander. Because it will happen. It's it's a reality. If you'd work through James, you'd see that one thing James does time and time again is kind of set a trajectory, kind of two paths before us. He sets two paths out in front of us. In chapter one, you see it as he sets out two different births, birthing sin within you or being reborn from above. Chapter two, two different ways to treat people, two different kind of types of faith, living faith that does stuff or dead faith that just says it believes. Chapter 3, two different types of wisdom, wisdom from above or wisdom from below. Chapter 4, two different types of friendship, friendship with God versus friendship with the world. Two paths set out before us, two very clear, distinct paths. And James's concern is that his hearers are trying to straddle both paths. He calls them double-minded. They want one foot on this path and one foot on this path. And it's not going to work. Eventually, they will end up choosing one path or the other. And James's concern is what happens when someone chooses the wrong path. Because James tells us there is such a thing as a right path and such a thing as a wrong path. Verse 19, if any of you should wander from the truth, there is a true and right path. 
Back in chapter 1, James says this. God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. There is such a thing as truth and God speaks that truth in his word and it is that that brings us new life, new birth. And it calls us to live a certain way, not just a truth that we are sent to in our heads, but that changes our whole lives, that causes us to switch paths. There is such a thing as truth. Which I guess is something that we need to emphasise today, really, isn't it? So there are some things that everyone accepts. You can have truth in. Two plus two is four. The sun is objectively hot. But actually, James is saying, no, there is truth, not just in those kind of things, but in the biggest questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What is this world all about? Where is it heading? Is there a God? And so on and so on. On those biggest questions, there is truth to be found. But we live in a world that is full of counterfeit truths. As I was uh, writing this sermon initially a few weeks ago, uh, I was talking to someone who had fallen victim of a scam that week, bought something from a website that looked completely official. It claimed it was just the Irish version of the UK company, but it was a complete front. The backpack that they ordered arrived yesterday, about six weeks late, and it was some costume jewellery. Money's gone. We live in a world of scammers. Satan is the first and the best scammer. His scam is the most effective one that has ever been brought into fruition. He makes other things that are false seem believable and attractive. He makes the wrong path look like the right path to follow, and so people fall for it. It tempts us to go astray. That is the reality. People wander. Most of us will know people who have wandered. So let's just stopping and pausing on that, just reflect on what does that mean for us. I thought we believed that Christians can't lose their salvation. That's right, they can't. He will keep us to the end. We're told that again and again. He who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's not that Christians can lose their salvation, but it is that people who profess Christ wandered away, and the way God keeps his people is by warning them. So when a warning like this comes to us, we need to heed it. Because if we don't, it reveals that maybe we weren't following at all. All of us probably know someone who's wandered. Some of us may have had seasons of wandering in the past. Some of us, if we were truly honest, our hearts starting to wander a little bit, even today. Those times where Satan's scam, it seems so tempting. It's false promises, they, they, they draw us in with the promise of comfort or pleasure or, or satisfaction or control. See, we want all the best things that God has to offer, but we want them on our terms with no weight and no hassle. And when God doesn't give us that, we're tempted to believe that that can be got another way. So people wonder. Picture the family out on a, on a holiday walk, 
maybe some of you have been away on a holiday recently, gone out for a family walk. You've, you've planned the route. You know where to go. There's the right path to follow. That's the safe path. That will get you where you want to go. It's safe. But maybe to you it just looks a little bit boring. Maybe that kind of cut through through the woods looks way more exciting. Maybe there's dens in there, trees to climb. This shows that we're not a very adventurous family. We would never take that path. But here's the point. If that path, uh, the the undergrowth was covering the fact that the, the, the ground was completely unstable, if going that way meant that you were guaranteed to break your ankle, you wouldn't do it. So too, the path that wanders away from God. It might look more fun. But the reality is there's no substance to it. It's guaranteed to harm you. Because it's not truth, verse 19. Instead, verse 20, it is error. James is deliberately unspecific here about what the error is. He doesn't tell us it's this specific error that people are tempted to fall into. And I think it's because he knows that different people are tempted to fall into different types of error. So some people may be more tempted to fall into an error of belief. Maybe it's as if, as you decide that that part of the Bible that's just a bit awkward to believe today, you're going to go quieter about that. And the silence turns to doubt, and the doubt turns to denial, an error of belief. Or maybe for you it's more an error of behaviour. If you decide you don't want to listen to God in that area of life, it's just too costly. If I can ignore him in that area, I can keep doing that thing that I really enjoy doing. We tell ourselves, he won't really mind. I'm his beloved child. I'm forgiven anyway. It's fine. I'll just dabble. We are those who are likely to wander. Many of you will know the famous hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. What does it say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And if those words ring true to you, to, to your wandering heart. Those words tragically may have been prophetic. We don't know for sure, but the writer of that hymn seems in his later years to have himself wandered from the Lord for good. Wandering is a reality. Wandering happens. Is wandering really a problem? Second thing we're going to see, the result of wandering Look at the outcome for the wanderer in our passage. Where does James say they're heading for if they're not turned back? Verse 20, they are saved from death. That would have been where they headed otherwise. They are heading for death. James has been laying out those two paths in his letter and now he finally shows us why we should avoid that one at all costs. Because it leads to death. What does he mean by that? What does it mean he mean that it leads to death? Because both paths must lead to death, right? Because we all die. Because James knows that this life isn't all there is. He knows that after we die, we'll be raised again. And at that point, we will stand before God and we will be confirmed in the path that we chose. If we chose the path that walked away from the Lord, he'll send us away from him. If we chose the path that follows the Lord, he'll take us into his glorious and eternal kingdom. One path brings salvation. We'll hear more about that later. The other path brings death. 
Because it is an eternity spent away from the one who gives life. It is eternity spent away from the one who himself is life. That's why James cares so much. This isn't incidental. This isn't lifestyle advice. This is life or death advice. So imagine that family walk again. Imagine as you're going along the walk, no longer is it kind of the slightly fun wood cut through. But you get to the fork, left or right, which way do I go? And then you see the massive yellow sign. The right-hand fork. Danger, cliff edge, unstable ground. Do not go this way. That makes the choice pretty easy, doesn't it? Which way are you going to go? You're going to avoid that path at all costs. So too, James says, with the path that leads away from the Lord. With the path that wanders away from the truth. With the path that chooses to follow the world rather than following Jesus. Avoid it, he says. Because the result of following that path, the result of wandering from the right path, is death. Wandering happens. That's the reality. Wandering leads to death. That's its result. What's our response to be? That's the third thing we're going to see. The response to wandering. Because twice in these two verses, James calls us to action. He calls us to bring back the wanderer, to turn the sinner from the wrong path. And in one sense, that's really obvious, right? So imagine you take the correct junction at that fork, you avoid the, the, the one with the yellow sign. But then you notice someone else has gone on the other one. They don't look like they're kind of official in high-vis and stuff. They just seem like they've taken the wrong path. What would you do? Well, imagining maybe they, they missed the sign somehow, or they're a foreign tourist who didn't understand the words. I hope what you do is run after them. If they're out of earshot, you run after them. And if you couldn't run, you'd send someone who could. Because they are in a dangerous situation. So too when we see people wandering away from the Lord. They are in danger. They need to realise the danger that they're in. And notice in these verses what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, verse 19, if one of the pastors uh, should bring someone back. It doesn't say, verse 20, when the elders turn a sinner from the error, error of their ways. Verse 19 says, someone. Verse 20 says, whoever. That is, search and rescue is a job for every Christian, not just for the few, not just for the leaders. It is for the leaders. Leaders do this. Expect your elders to pursue you if you start to wander. Just like I hope that if they started to wander, you would pursue them as well. Just like I hope that my church family would pursue me if I started to wander. Not everyone's called to be a preacher. Not everyone's called to be a pastor. Every single Christian is called to be a pursuer. It's part of what God calls us to do. It's not a rotor to opt into. Not an optional extra for the keen Christian. We are all to be involved in seeking to bring back the one who is wandering. Because our hearts naturally wander, don't they? So it's a well-used illustration, it's not original to me at all, but our hearts are like shopping trolleys. What happens if you push a shopping trolley and let go? Probably goes about 10 metres, 
then it veers way off to the left or way off to the right. That's what our hearts are like, left to themselves. We can't assume that we will stay on the right path. We can't assume that others will stay on the right path. We need one another. We need one another to turn us from the error of our ways. It's interesting, verse 20 says, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way. We use that phrase, the error of our ways, today, but we use it actually quite differently. We always talk about me seeing the error of my way. Because we're such an individualistic culture that errors are mine to make, they're mine to spot, and no one else has the right to tell me what to do. The only person who can turn me from my errors is me. That's what our culture says. James says the exact opposite. If one member of the church family is wandering, it is all of our responsibility to do something about it. Maybe there's someone in your mind who you think, I've not seen them at church for a few weeks. I don't think it's because they've been on holiday. In those kind of situations, we need to not do the British thing and just hold back. Being polite, not sticking our noses in. Because this matters way too much to just keep quiet. Verses like this are why I'm convinced the church membership is such a good thing. I know that's something you guys have. It helps us remind one another, remind ourselves, who we're responsible for. It gives us a list of people mentally to be on wonder watch for. To work out who might be wandering. I'm told that you guys have a kind of prayer diary that you use to pray through the church members. If you're a church member, I hope you're making the most of that. It's a great thing to do, to pray for one another. Why not also use it to notice who might be wandering? As you pray through the course of a month, think, who haven't I seen for the last few months? Who have I seen, but maybe the way they're talking about how they're spending their, their days or their weekends seems to not be matching up with the profession they're making. Don't just leave it at praying for them. Do pray for them, but move towards them. Pursue them, and don't assume that someone else already is. Let's do it with urgency. Because the further down the path of error someone goes, the harder it is to get them back. We'll just pause at that point and recognise that there's a slight danger that verses like this end up with us taking an approach that starts to resemble a little bit of a cult. That is not what these verses are about. These verses are not a case of us being kind of super zealous that we can't possibly lose anyone because we have to keep everyone to ourselves. We're not a case desperate to not let anyone escape. There will sadly come a time with some people where we have to say we've tried and they're not coming back. But we are to pursue people, not because we want to keep them to ourselves, not because we want to make sure that our numbers stay high, but because of the danger people are in if they go away from us. If they move away from here and go to another church that speaks the Bible well, let them go. If they're running away from the Lord, do not let them go. It's too serious. It matters too much. Because verse 20, look at what happens when someone does successfully pursue. It saves them from death. It keeps them on the right path, it keeps them on that narrow road that leads to eternal life. And it covers over 
a multitude of sins. That is to say, if that person, as they've been wandering away, has committed some kind of awful sins in those times, the kind of thing that you'd be shocked that anyone who called himself a Christian could possibly do, even if they've done those things as they wander, by virtue of turning back, those sins are covered over. Not because God is impressed when we turn back to him, but because our repentance brings us back into right relationship with the one who hung on a cross to die to save us. Because we all sit here this afternoon, if you're a Christian, because we were first pursued. We were first pursued. We are to pursue one another because God pursued us first. The story at the heart of the Bible is a search and rescue story motivated by the love of the rescuer. See, we're natural wanderers. We're like sheep who go astray. We're like the prodigal son, aren't we? Taking good things from his father, running away to spend them on our pleasures. We were made for a relationship with God, but we wander from that. It's the greatest error that anyone could make. It is an error that leads to death. Because ultimately there is no life apart from the source of life. We wander from God. How does he treat us as we wander? Does he look down from heaven and go, serves them right? I put warning signs in place. I've done my bit. It's not my fault that they've rebelled. That couldn't be any further from God's response, could it? Like the shepherds, he leaves the 99 to go after the one. Jesus tells us why he came into the world. He tells us in Luke 19, verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Because Jesus doesn't just sit in heaven and shout to us that we're on the wrong path. He came, comes down from heaven to seek and to save us. He walks that path of death. He walks it to the very end. He came to seek and to save the lost. And when he was on that path, he never once wandered away from it. Never wandering from his father's will. And so he pays the penalty for our wandering. He is the great pursuer. He grabs us from the path that leads to death. He transfers us to the path that leads to life. This passage warns us against wandering from the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. This passage calls people to turn back from the error of their way. Jesus says, I am the way. This passage says that turning from the error of your way saves you from death, gives you life. Jesus says, I am the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. He is the solution to our wandering hearts. He is the great pursuer. He pursued us first. You might be here this afternoon and as you're hearing these words, this doesn't really feel like it's true for you. This isn't something that you personally would say you believe. Can you see the danger that you're in if you don't turn from the path that you're on? And will you turn to the one who promises to save you from death? 
And for those here this afternoon whom Jesus has already successfully pursued, he calls you to follow in his footsteps. He calls you to pursue everyone who wanders. To not be satisfied to just let people do what they want to do. But to go after them, to plead with them about the danger of wandering away. With hope, prayer, by God's help they might turn back. Turn back from the error of their way. That they may be saved from death. I preached these words, uh, this, this passage at Woody Road a few weeks ago, um, and I pleaded with them. I said, church family, if you notice me start to wander, please, whatever you do, pursue me. I need that. Sure, Sai, uh, Lanks, Johnny, they'd all say the same. If they start to wander, pursue them. If you start to wander... Don't be surprised if they or others pursue you. And if you see others start to wander, pursue them. Because we are prone to wander. And the result is too serious to let anyone stay in their wandering. So instead, we are all to be involved in search and rescue. Let me listen to prayer. Father in heaven, our hearts are so prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. And so, Father, we pray that you would use your word, use your spirit, and use your people to keep each of us from wandering. And where we see others start to wander, please give us the boldness, the courage, the strength to pursue them. Because... Otherwise, they are left on a path that leads to death. Only your spirit can do that work to change hearts. So, Father, we pray that by your spirit, that would indeed happen in the life of this church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.